We've been practicing together now for a couple of days and really had the opportunity to plunge quite wholeheartedly into this process that's both rather simple and yet in many ways challenging. That's involved, well mostly involves something very ordinary, just sitting around, walking back and forth. And yet also takes us into the territory of what is extraordinary. To explore what it means for us as human beings to to know and discover a greater depth of peace, of well-being, of happiness, of freedom. Of course, that may not all happen in the course of a two- or three-day retreat, but we may start to get a sense of something that's possible for us, something more than we might have known from our life before, from our practice prior to being here. And one of the ways we might experience or understand the journey and what takes place is a perhaps we could see it at times as a, a movement between what we could call stillness and what we could call activity or movement. In the meditation we have periods where we're just sitting in one place seeming to really not be doing anything at all, maybe standing. And then we're walking back and forth. And we can feel these things as sometimes a contrast, and many people will report that in one form or the other it's perhaps easier or more challenging to engage in the practice. And we might, when we reflect upon our life, also see that there are times when it's more busy, more full, more intense, more challenging. When there are times where it's perhaps more quiet, more easy or easeful, less demands being made of us. And looking at the, the kind of the outer form of our experience, we'll, we'll tend to see these kinds of dichotomies or Contrasts, we could say. And this experience of engagement and activity, or disengagement and non-activity, that we might see in our world and experience in our bodily life, has also the more, perhaps we could say, significant or subtle element of our inner experience, likewise is reflected in this way. The experience of stillness, and movement of activity and quietitude within our hearts and our minds. And this, of course, is something that interests us, that we care about. The condition of our heart and our mind is of deep interest and concern to us, and understandably so, rightly so. And within that we may have a sense of, of looking for, of searching for, of seeking for a particular condition or state or circumstance that when we arrive in that place, when we know or inhabit that circumstance, we, we imagine that will somehow be the coming to the end of the process of our journey. There will be the arrival. and We can talk about whether maybe we're seeking what we call happiness or satisfaction, whether we're concerned with the end of suffering and distress, or looking for a sense of meaning or fulfilment. All of these all of these elements, all of these ways we might speak about what's important to us are valid and appropriate. And I think what they kind of represent for us in different ways is the sense of where we come to the point where we're actually at peace with and we can rest in our life as it is. And there's this way which we kind of, we long and often coming on a retreat, we're, we're aware of how much is going on, how much stress, how much activity, how many things we need to deal with in our lives and we kind of long for it to come to an end. It's like, I really wish all of that that goes on could just 
stop or at least pause or, or maybe even just slow down. You know, I'd, I'd take just slowing down for my life. That would be good. And there's this, this sense of, it's sort of like, ah, that we might associate with, with things coming to an end. Just, ah. I don't know if you have a sense of what that, what that reflects or expresses. The, the particular sound your body might make might be different. But sometimes it's like, ah, I'd really like to come to an end of whatever it is that's generating stress or intensity or struggle. And yet at the same time as we have that call or that pull, there's a, there's a kind of a way in which we're also interested and engaged by all of the stuff that's going on, that at times is, is wearying or troubling or challenging. At the same time, we're interested in it. It's like, hmm, what's, what's going on? What's here? And there's almost like a, an attraction to it. That, that it's like, oh, this is my life. This is experience. It's changing. It's dynamic. It's alive. And the whole world of activity, at the same time as we, we sometimes think, oh, I'd really like a break from all that. At the same time, there's this sense of, hmm, yeah, I'd like a bit of this and a bit of that. And maybe not too much of the other thing. But there's that way in which we're also interested. And, and, and again, I, I find myself that sort of, hmm, we have that sense of what might nourish or fulfill us. It's kind of different to that sense of wanting things just to become quiet. And so we can notice what seem to be maybe contradictory movements within our experience, within our heart and our mind, where we might find ourselves uncomfortable or feeling the pressure or intensity of all of the activity of what goes on, the thoughts and the feelings, the relationships, the demands that we have to engage in, and we want it to end. We want it to end. We want it to somehow just stop. And with regard to those things that we find difficult, we find challenging, the invitation in the practice is is to be with us, to to allow ourselves to just inhabit the space in which we're in contact with, which we're in touch with, which we're abiding with that, that we may not find so easy, that we may not find so comfortable. When we react to it and wanting it to go away, when we try and push it away, when we try and control it, there's a way in which we're somehow identifying with that tendency that that wants things to be the way I want them to be. And in that identifying with it, we suffer, we struggle, we become entangled in our experience. And so there's this invitation here to, to find... Can we form a relationship with the experiences that come, the flowing, changing, fluid movement of my life in which I can receive it and release it? So as it comes towards me, I let it come. I don't say no to it. But as it changes or moves, I also don't say no to that process of movement and change. And in that way we learn to make peace with the movement of our life, with the things that come and go. And at the same time, we have opportunity in a retreat like this and the situation that we're in to also explore what does it mean to to come into a relationship of peace, to be at peace with stillness or with absence. Because often for us, it's not easy. We might long for things to stop. And as soon as they stop, we suddenly want something to happen. In fact, Sometimes when things get really quiet, we think, it's getting really quiet, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. And actually what's happening is that nothing's happening. It's getting quiet. There's not much happening, and yet we have the sense of because not much is happening, something's going to happen. Now, maybe the not much happening is what's happening. But something in us wants it to be more than that, very easily and understandably. And yet... What's going on in that is really important to reflect on because what we see is that when we don't have something going on, whatever it might be, whether in our life or in our meditation, when there's not so much going on, we see that we're kind of lacking in the raw material for telling ourselves who we are and how we are. What goes on in our experience, what happens, what arises, what emerges, is what we tend to to use to somehow affirm our existence, to somehow validate who I am, to define our role, our, our sort of, our sense of I'm okay, 
or I'm of value in some way. It's often dependent upon generating experiences that allow us to draw a reflection from them. To, in the wish to feel okay or to feel good about ourselves, the need. And it's, a, it's an appropriate wish and need. We can nonetheless get entangled with the experiences because some of them don't give us the reflection we wish for. When we're depending on our experience to tell us whether I'm good enough or not, then we're really vulnerable because, okay, so I'm sitting in meditation and, um, you know, sometimes I can be quite present. And then I feel like, oh, I'm, I'm quite a good meditator. And, and therefore somehow I'm a good person and I feel okay. And then, of course, I notice that I just sort of formed this idea based on a few moments of mindfulness that I was a good meditator. And I think, oh, gosh, I'm a bit sort of inflated. Realize, and that now, now I'm a bad meditator. Oh, you know, a few thoughts and suddenly I'm no good at all. And we just do the same thing in the other way. Taking the experience to mean something about me. And yet, painful and limiting as that is, and in a way kind of, we could almost find some kindly humour about the way we do it so compulsively. Like we take what's going on and we make it into a story about me that says I'm okay or I'm not okay. And whenever, of course, it says I'm okay, I'm busy looking for the thing that's going to tell me I'm not. So I don't get to rest there. And when, I'm, when it tells me I'm not okay, I'm always looking around for the thing that's going to tell me I am okay. So I don't stop there either. It's like we attempt to get a place and a purchase on who I am through what's going on. And it doesn't work. It doesn't actually happen like that for us. And so part of what happens in a retreat situation like this, and part of why it's challenging in a way that's kind of hard to spot until we understand what's going on. Because, you know, frankly, if you went home and told your friends who've never done something like this what you were doing for the last couple of days, you know, we sat around on the cushion. It was quite a soft cushion, actually. or in a chair. And after a little while, we got up and we wandered back and forth. We didn't have to go very far. We sat down some more. There were some meals provided. That's pretty much what we did. It was such hard work. You know, there's no way they'd believe us. They'd go, no way. That couldn't be hard work, could it? Of course, there's many ways it can be hard work. The, the physical discipline of the postures and the, the, um, the, the, sort of the, the circumstances that aren't as we might choose to make them in terms of our own home or you know, sharing, sharing um, bedrooms. As for, for those, and that's quite a few of us who have to. It's quite challenging in that. But at a deeper level, part of what's really challenging here is that as we take away the kind of things that we used to, we're used to engaging in to perform and to succeed or fail at. But even if we fail, at least then I know I'm a failure. And here, as we start to see, we can't really measure our meditation and we can't, certainly can't draw any valid conclusions about who I am or how I am based on what happens in my meditation. As we start to get that, we're left not really quite so sure how to know who I am, or in fact, whether I even know who I am. And that question might not arise as a question, gosh, who am I in the midst of all this? It may, of course, and it can be powerful when it does that, but it may just arise as a sense of looking for something in which what I'm actually doing is looking to get a reflection back that tells me I'm okay or not okay, or even just tells me that I'm here. And if things got too quiet, if there was nothing going on suddenly, how would I know who I am? How would I know even that I am? And so what we notice is that our, our patterns of reactivity become amplified often on retreat. We think we're coming in, we'd really like all those reactivities to be quiet, to become calm. And sometimes they do, but other times they seem to become stronger. And it's kind of ironic and a little bit frustrating for meditators to find, actually, here am I desperately craving a cup of tea when actually I had one half an hour ago. I don't really need one, but I really want a cup of tea because just give me something that will entertain me, please. And actually, you know, maybe if we weren't in the meditation all craving the cup of tea when we went to the tea urn, we might not even want one. But it's like, I want something. Or there's something going on, you know, and we find it irritating and frustrating, you know. 
And it's just some small thing that might not bother us in other circumstances, but here somehow becomes amplified because those tendencies and patterns are sort of in the spotlight here. And what we might also notice sometimes, which is interesting, is a, a way in which sort of creative movements within us can arise. And, and they can, you know, in many situations of our life, be very beautiful, lovely things. Sort of, it may be sort of, like for myself, I would sometimes on a retreat find poetry arising. And other people, it might be, you know, the urge to, to fold some of the notepaper into some beautiful origami or to, 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 to illustrate or to draw or to compose um, and you know whatever one's creative inclination might be and there's nothing wrong with that in fact sometimes it can be a beautiful thing to allow to flow but part of what's sometimes going on in that is a, a way in which we, we're kind of being drawn back into familiar ways of engaging that kind of give us a, a positive reflection or give us a sense of this is who I am because this is how I know myself and um, with regard to creative expression in the context of practice, it's useful to get to know what it's like to not choose to follow that before one chooses to do so. So one knows it's really a choice. If we just go with that, and I would sometimes find myself in my early years of practice feeling like I couldn't resist the urge to start writing this poem down and then spend half the time sitting around trying to figure out where it had to go next. And it's like, actually, that's not so helpful. Just seeing what comes, it comes, okay, it's there. And often what I would find is if I just leave it alone, it finds its own way into sort of form more fully. And, uh, and sometimes just feeling that sense of what that's like. Oh, there's this urge, this movement. And, and to, to not judge it in any way, to not think it's a bad thing or something that shouldn't be happening, but seeing what happens if just for the sake of exploration I don't go down that path right now and see what it's like. And so we're practicing a, a quality of restraint here that isn't about suggesting the thing I restrain myself from has anything wrong with it. Just as when we say we're going to be silent, it doesn't mean speaking has something wrong with it or it's a bad thing. But something else can happen when I don't follow those familiar pathways of activity that we could say are kind of movements, engagements, expressions. That it, Although they're not in a way absolutely opposed to, nonetheless emerge as responses to or possibly as alternatives to allowing ourselves to rest in the stillness and the, the relative absence of engagement, of activity, of sort of result-producing engagements that are here. And so, you know, you don't get prizes for walking back and forth more times than anybody else. There's just no prize for that. You've probably worked that out. There's also no prize for walking more slowly than anybody else. Or sitting more still or for longer. I mean, the Buddha wins, hands down, you know. Um, of course, the Buddha's made of bronze. He hasn't moved for decades. We've moved him a couple of times, but he hasn't moved. And it's like, well, best not compete then. Um, sometimes we do standing meditation outside and um, it's bit, been a bit cool um, last couple of days, but uh, and I, I often like to evoke the image of standing meditation it's a bit like meditation with like like being like a tree rooted in the earth and upright and that quality. And then I often make the suggestion that you know trees are great um, companions and examples of standing meditation, but best not to get competitive with them because we go very quickly into this sort of obviously they're going to win, aren't they? But we go into this kind of wanting to do something that can be measured and evaluated and then we use that to reflect back some conclusion onto ourselves. And this, this expresses or this is a manifestation of a, of a kind of deep restlessness or lack of ease or peace in, in, in our human hearts and minds that shows itself as a kind of a looking, as a kind of a seeking, as a kind of a wanting, a certain, maybe not even quite yet known or recognised something, but what we know is it, whatever it is, it's not quite this. It's like the sense that something's missing or something's needed or something 
has to be added or removed in order for things to be as I wish or need them to be. And there's a, there's a kind of a way in which we can find ourselves looking for, for something without quite knowing it. Some, um, gosh, almost 25 years ago now, I realise. Oh, no, 23 years ago, I guess. Quite a long time ago. I was uh, relatively recently married. And um, my wife Catherine and I were staying at some friend's house for a few months. We didn't have any place of our own at the time. And uh, <clears throat> I was doing the washing up and the phone rang. So I went to answer the phone, just left the dishes, went, picked up the phone. And as I was uh, talking to my friend on the phone, I just put my hand down onto my wedding ring, which because it hadn't been there that long, and it was still kind of strange to have this piece of metal attached to my finger. I started sort of reaching to play with it, as I would often kind of do unconsciously, not very mindfully, I'm afraid. Um, and it wasn't there. And it was like, oh, I'm talking to my friend, and suddenly it's like, oh, no, it's fallen off. I called out, covered them out, called out to Catherine, don't tip the dishwater out. Um, but I was actually quite distressed because my wedding ring had fallen off. Um, and so I finished the conversation with my friend, hung up and went, and we gently, carefully poured the water out of the, um, out of the bucket, out of the sort of the dishwashing dish, and there was no ring. I started looking. And, where, and I, I had my hand on the place, the sort of soft, shiny spot where the ring would go. And it was kind of like, where is it? And I was really distressed. We were looking through the house, looking through the here. So I can't find it. I can't find it. And it was really, I was really getting quite upset. And then at one point, Catherine looked at me, and there was, I was sort of going, oh, it's missing, it's missing. Where's, where's my ring? And she looked at me, and she said, Yanai, it's the other hand. <laughs> and somehow, I was looking for the ring, and it wasn't there. And I was feeling it's... It's goneness, it's absence, and it was so missing. And all along, it was on my other hand. And somehow I'd fooled myself. And in fact, the very distress and concern and urge of looking prevented me from seeing it was there. And you know, it's mildly embarrassing in one sense. And also it's kind of, oh, well, that's interesting, isn't it? So much of what we find ourselves doing is this process of looking out into our experience, away from where we are, into what might yet be, what might yet come. Looking for something without perhaps even knowing what it is. And this is kind of fascination we have with this movement of what, what's coming? And whether it might be what I'm looking for. I lived and worked in, um, in a retreat centre in America um, years ago and Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts and Barry, I was the resident teacher there. And at one point, one of the staff had a lovely young daughter whose name was Kiko. and I think she was probably, I don't know, maybe five, six, I'm not quite sure. Um, and one of the endearing qualities this, this little girl had was that she would run around full of enthusiasm for everything. And, and she'd find things and bring them to her mother to say, look at this. And then she'd go and do something else. But every time, she, whatever she was doing, she'd always be coming back and saying to her mother, or to whoever was there, what's next? What's next? And it was incredibly endearing. It was lovely to watch the, this bright sparkle of life in her engagement. And at one point I just started to become curious. And as she came, it was, look at this. What's next? What's next? I said, Kiko, what's now? And she looked at me and said, straight away without a blink of an eye, nothing. <laughs> and went off looking for the next thing that was next. And it was like complete dismissal. I didn't take it personally. In fact, it was lovely because it was quite innocent in a way. And yet, 
It's interesting in terms of this practice, when we see what's playing out, even though we might not think that this is what's going on for us, to a large extent what we see is the habitual tendency to dismiss where I am and what's here and go looking for what isn't. Looking to the future, looking to the past. Looking into the realms of what was and is gone. And it's gone. And what might be that doesn't exist, and it doesn't exist. That pull, that movement, is where we become lost. So we're invited here to, to reflect on, to look, to see what's it, what is it about experience that seems so compelling to me, so attractive. Even when it's difficult for us, we're nonetheless compelled to engage with it, it seems. And at times unable to kind of step back from what's going on. And it's like the, the events, the phenomena, the experience, the things that happen, that happen loom very large for us. They have this meaning. They're, they, they're kind of like the, the pieces or, the, or the, the, the building blocks of our sense of both the world and ourself. As we notice, as we pay attention to what's going on, the thoughts, the feelings, the stories, the images the sensations. This is what we construct the sense of me and the world from. We don't notice we're doing it. We take it for granted that it's like this. This me and this world. Somehow making this meeting or involved in this encounter, this connecting, this engaging or disengaging, depending how we're involved with it. And yet if we, if we start to look more carefully, what we see is that this, this is something that's appearing, that's taking place, and that we can attend to it. We can be mindful of it, or conscious, or aware of, or present with the experience. And there's something relational in that. It's like almost there's two aspects to what's here. And we could talk about movement and stillness as aspects of what's here. Just as we might see when we look into the into the realms above us in the daytime, we might see the sky and the clouds. Sometimes it might be the sky and the sun. But we see that the sky isn't moving. The clouds move through the space. And if there aren't any clouds, the sun moves through the space. It's like if we see a movie and we probably forget quite easily. In fact, the movie is carefully designed to make us forget that actually it's a bunch of colours being projected onto a screen. And the colours keep moving around and we get really interested and we start to actually start become quite concerned about or interested in or actually some of them we don't like. Just a bunch of colours moving around on a screen, yet the screen is blank and clear. There's nothing, we can't even see the screen, and yet pictures moving on a screen create the sense of something alive that actually becomes meaningful for us. That's how a movie works. Of course, if someone would say that to us while we're watching it, we'd probably get a little bit annoyed, you know. Hey, you know that's just a bunch of colours moving around on a screen. They're like, shut up, I'm trying to follow the story. And yet, there's something of that going on here. We are invited just to notice. Oh, here's these experiences appearing. And then there's this capacity to know them, to see them, to experience them, to be touched by them, and to touch them. This human heart-mind in contact with life. And as we start to notice that, 
as we start to see that there's these different dimensionalities in the experience, we start to find some space in and with and through it all. Space in which we can begin to relax and release our demands upon and our grip upon the experience. It's like as we start to listen carefully and as our attention becomes more refined, we start to hear the sounds and we just hear the sound rather than hearing the sound and starting to immediately think about the sound and what the sound means or whether it's a sound I like or I don't like and who's causing it and when they're going to stop or would they perhaps do it again if I like it. We don't get into the story of the sound, we just hear the sound and then perhaps we start to hear the silence. When the sound fades away we hear Oh, I can actually sense what that is that allowed me to hear, even when there's nothing to hear. It's almost like the silence is here, even when the sound is heard. I might not quite understand how and why that could be, but we start to get to start to perhaps intuit that there's something we call sound emerging out of something we call silence, and then falling back into it. And the sound doesn't obscure the silence any more than the silence obscures the sound. So too, as we begin to sense this remarkable, mysterious, and at the same time rather ordinary and organic process of wakefulness, of mindfulness, of consciousness, of awareness being developed and brought to bear, on our experience, we see that all of this life that flows is flowing through the space of just right here and right now. And we might get a sense that it's speaking to us or that it's offering something to us that isn't something, it's not saying anything, but nor is it saying nothing. And it's not giving us a something, but nor is it true to say it isn't that it ought to say, nor is it true to say that there's nothing here on offer. As we stop taking hold of the movement of experience, as we stop depending upon it to define ourselves, to reflect ourselves, to affirm ourselves as we don't need that so much, as we start to deepen in our trusting the value of just the beingness of our life that doesn't have to be affirmed or doesn't have to be proved or confirmed by some sort of performance. That's the way the world, the conventional world works. But at the, the level of heart and spirit, that's not so. In fact, our very existence has its value and its preciousness inherent in it. And we see this when we encounter a small baby. It's obvious how amazingly this thing can't do anything hardly at all for itself. It's completely dependent. And we encounter a baby and it's like, wow, how amazing, mysterious, precious and beautiful. And we might have a similar experience if we encounter an elderly person or someone on their deathbed, the end of their life, again, pretty limited in their capacity, functionality, or ability to perform anything at all. And yet just something in the being is like, wow, something precious is there. And of course we lose sight of that in the busyness of our lives between that birth and death moment. But it's still there. And yet somehow we forget that. We go looking for some confirmation reinforcement or affirmation through experience that because it keeps changing can't give it to us in any lasting way. And so when we keep taking those things on, taking things to be who we are, we become bound in them and dependent on them.
and yet the very fact that they can be known and experienced is pointing to something that is not defined by them and yet not separate from them. There's a there's a passage in the book Siddhartha by Herman Hesse, which uh, sort of tells the story, which maybe some of you will know, of uh, a spiritual seeker living at the time of the Buddha, with the same name as the Buddha, but he's not the Buddha. And uh, there's one point in his journey where he, having gone through a, a range of different uh, explorations, he he kind of runs out of hope in a way and gives up and just sits by the river and over time he learns to listen to the river and uh, this passage relates it says Siddhartha listened he was now listening intently completely absorbed quite empty taking in everything he felt that he had now completely learned the art of listening he had often heard all of this before all these numerous voices in the river. But today they sounded different. He could no longer distinguish the different voices, the merry voice from the weeping voice, the childish voice from the manly voice. They all belonged to each other. The lament of those who yearn, the laughter of the wise, the cry of the indignant, and the groan of the dying. They were all interwoven and interlocked, entwined in a thousand ways. And all the voices, all the goals, all the yearnings, all the sorrows, all the pleasures, all the good and evil, all of them together was the world. All of them together was the stream of events, the music of life. When Siddhartha listened attentively to this river, to this song of a thousand voices, when he did not listen to the sorrow or the laughter, he did not bind his soul to any one particular voice and absorb it into himself, but heard them all, the whole, the unity. Then the great song of a thousand voices consisted of one word, perfection. So as we practice, we're learning to listen to the music of our life. We're learning to sit by the river, close to the river, not somehow far distant from it. And yet not take hold of the particulars that flow through. As we develop in our practice, we allow all of the experience that comes to come. And we allow all experience to go that goes to go. That's what we're training. That's what we're developing. That's what we're learning to be able to more fully do. And as we do so, we start to discover what it might be to be open to all things and bound by none of them. To be not defined by our experience and yet not apart from it either. To rest in the simple knowing of this life as a foundation for deep peace and also a framework from which engagement and responsiveness naturally emerges. The Indian mystic teacher and saint Nisargadatta Maharaj, who lived in the 20th century, he once said, Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. 
And to contemplate this, to, to, tell, to know that I am no thing. It doesn't mean that one disappears. Oh, I've suddenly become nothing. But that the, the way we tend to define ourselves by things, by experience, by events, by our history, by our roles, by our characteristics, all of that, that we actually can't define ourselves by this. We can't pin down who and what we are in those terms. Because all these things are fluid and changing. They arise according to conditions. They change when the conditions change. So one moment I'm a great meditator, one moment I'm a terrible meditator. Oh, in fact, the truth is that I'm neither of those, we could say, and perhaps both. But there's nowhere to land there. There's a profound wisdom in this. To see that we are no particular thing that can be separated or held as solid or fixed or ongoing. And at the same time, love tells me I am everything. What we find when we're in touch with our hearts is there's a natural caring. It's organic, it's innate. We don't need to make it happen, but we do need to work with the ways it becomes boundaried, held back and limited or constrained. And that is part of our practice. But when we see from the eyes of love, what we notice, what we sense is that the caring for another is equal to the caring for ourselves. Because love shows us that in fact whatever we look upon with the eyes of love is not other than ourselves, is not separate from ourselves. And we are in that, from that perspective, we are everything. We are all things. We're not defined by any of them, but nor are we apart from all of them. And in this, there's a, there's a both a coming to rest and a movement of responsiveness in the heart that we can understand and speak of as compassion. As this wish to offer that care that we find in our heart, that love, that kindness, that concern for the well-being of others and ourselves, to find ways to offer that. And the image that's sometimes used, and uh, famous teacher Shantideva, who lived in India in the, in the 6th century, he would talk about the way the hand just rubs the foot. It doesn't sort of think about it too much. If the foot is sore, the hand will just come and rub the foot. It doesn't think, oh yeah, this is a really great thing I'm doing. I'm a real, you know, I'm a saint, the Mother Teresa of hands. I'm rubbing that foot, being good to it. It just rubs the foot, even though it's a hand. That's a foot. Of course, at some level, we see hand and the foot. They're connected. It's just the way we talk about them. Says this is a hand. That's a foot. But there's no place where one stops and the other begins. And so too, as we start to see more deeply into life, we see that. The sharedness of our life is much more fundamental than whatever it is that might appear to separate us or hold us apart. And the care that's natural, that's intrinsic in us, starts to find its expression in, well, in well-wishing, in caring for, in actively and responsibly engaging in seeking to contribute to the well-being of life, of the world, of all. And I find this very sweetly and beautifully expressed by the words of Rio Khan, who's a, uh, who's a, a Zen monk, um, a poet and a, a hermit who lived in the, uh, the 17th, 18th century. And um, he, he, he wrote once in his, in, 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 from, the, from this place, I, I would suggest or imagine, he, he wrote, he said, Oh, that my monk's robe were wide enough to gather up all of the suffering beings in this floating world. There's that sense of wanting to kind of just reach up and gather in. It's not meaning that he could, because clearly his his robe wasn't big enough. But that that movement of the heart of wishing to care for all beings. And I'm I'm very fond of Rio Khan. His his poetry I find delightful. And... um, exquisitely simple and poignant. 
And uh, there's a story about him where apparently on one occasion, on a, on a cold winter's morning, um, he, he, was, he, was, he was seen um, taking the lice out of his robe and placing them on a rock to sun themselves because it was cold, really tenderly and carefully. And even more amazingly, at the end of the day, picking them up and putting them back in his robe. <laughs> and one wonders, what did this being, this, this person know about life? What was in his heart that would lead him to act in that way? And it seems to me something rather beautiful and simple at the same time. He would often be teased by the villagers because he'd be going off to do his um, arms round to beg for his meal and sometimes he'd meet some children and end up playing with them and forget to get his food. And then he'd go hungry. So people thought he was kind of silly at times, but there was a, a simple joy in, in him that uh, I found I find in reading him. Of course, I didn't know him personally, but in reading his words, uh, very powerful, I find. And so there's this, this movement, this journey we undertake coming into our lives, into existence, entering into a retreat such as this, where we, we're moving towards more fully understanding, more fully recognizing, realizing, discovering the fundamental interconnectedness of life, which has its many remarkable expressions and individual and unique manifestations, but that nonetheless reveal something profound that is shared amongst all. And that in the discovery, in the realizing, in the understanding, or coming more fully into contact with this, that is just simply what is here and what is now, is not something other than that that this practice and this path is a journey of returning to where we already are. This right here and right now is both the path and the completion of it, the conclusion of it and the fulfilment of it. T.S. Eliot writes in the Four Quartets, he says, we will not cease from exploration and the end of our exploring will be to arrive at the beginning to know that place for the first time to arrive where we started and to know that place for the first time a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well So if you ever felt on occasion in your retreat that you were kind of coming back to where you started, that might not be a bad thing. Beginning again right here and again. To know the deep peace that the Buddha's teaching points to and that is revealed in the the words and the writings of wise human beings throughout the ages, throughout the many different traditions. To know this for ourselves, we are asked to let go of seeking for something other and to allow ourselves to enter very fully and deeply what is here and what is now. without looking for something particular and yet equally not looking away from what is particular. And in this very place we may find the peace and the freedom that our hearts yearn for. Let's sit quietly for a few moments together.
So may we all in our lives and in our practice here, may we find peace amidst the movement of life. And at the same time know the peace of what does not move. May we come to rest right where we are, to know this place always fresh for the first time and each time. The place we begin. And that we never leave. May we know and live with compassion and in freedom. Born of this understanding that we are not separate from nor bound by the world. And may this understanding serve our well-being and the welfare of all beings and all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.